All right, welcome back to CMO Insights. Uh, my guest, again, Scott Brinker, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> so, Thank you for uh, bringing me back. <laughs> well, we, were, we couldn't keep it to just one part now. We were covering way too much ground. I think uh, we were passionately talking about uh, marketing and not getting uh, not getting its just rewards, still fighting for, for survival, right, even though they have, they're controlling all this technology now. Um, one of the things in, in light of that, one trend I've seen over the last four to five years is this rise of sales tech. It, it, so sales continuing getting frustrated from marketing and disintermediating them from the whole mix, right? So so even if a company does have a HubSpot or Marketo and Eloqua, pick one, we're seeing companies go out and buy Salesloft, uh, HiSpot, uh, you know, um, uh, Outreach or, or other types of platforms, Sendosa, uh, and they're controlling, they're running their own campaigns uh, and, and trying to drive their own leads. Why, why is that? When there's all this technology that marketing has, right, and marketing is supposed to be driving demand, why is sales taking it upon themselves? Yeah, well, um, I mean, one thing you have to say about salespeople is they are resourceful. Like, they will find a way to beat a path, uh, you know, to hitting their quota. Um, yeah, uh, and so, yeah, you know, heaven help you if you're trying to stand between them and that. Um, I don't know. I mean, so I, I look at this a few different ways. I mean, you know, certainly one of the interesting things here is that the nature of sales has changed a lot. In, I mean, we obviously we've been seeing that for a while here, but particularly over like the pandemic years too, you know, so much of it went into a more digital form. And I think salespeople really started to embrace this ability that like, oh, well, we can have these digital interactions and can give us insights to where people are at. And we can, you know, share these things that we then get to measure, you know, how they're getting shared and adopted elsewhere. And we're starting to use these tools to map out our account and the interrelationships between these things. Things. Uh, and in some ways, I think a lot of that is is complementary, uh, you know, to marketing. Um, but there is that that overlap between the two where you're like, OK, well, is this marketing's job? Is it sales job? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I don't know. This is maybe just a crazy philosophical thing on it. But I kind of feel like that tension might be a little bit healthy. Like, I think it might actually be pushing marketing to rethink you know its processes um i think it's forcing salespeople, sales organizations to get more creative and when they think of like what are all the possible ways we could engage and you know you know move things forward and so while that creates some tension and i'm sure some yeah uh, uncomfortable conversations i'm somewhat tentatively optimistic that that churn is going to get us to a place where we actually improve and innovate, you know, the overall model. So we talked in part one about Gartner's prediction originally about the growth of technology, right? And how marketing would control more of it. They just made another one recently, which is a bit controversial, right? That, that marketing is going to now start reporting into the CRO. I know a lot of our colleagues have something to say about that. Uh, what are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. So I, I've seen two variations on it, too. I've seen it, uh, you know, aligned under a chief revenue officer. And I've also seen it aligned under a chief customer officer that also takes a, a view of incorporating, you know, the customer service and customer success dimensions of this as well, too. Um, I'm of two minds of it. One is actually, I think other things being equal, 
having an executive focused on the end-to-end customer journey and making sure that we're getting alignment across marketing motions, sales motions, customer success motions, is is really smart. I mean, obviously related to this here is uh, you know the whole RevOps you know concept of like oh, if you're going to have a revenue officer above all that, you probably yeah you're going to need an ops team you know that enables and supports that. I think where I empathize, particularly with marketing ops folks, you know, who are a little skeptical of this sometimes, is each one of these disciplines still has a lot of depth and specialization into itself. And so I think you just have to be careful that aligning things in a higher level organization has a lot of benefits, but you don't want to try and homogenize away the specialization, you know, and like, like sort of the depth of expertise, you know, that people have in, you know, marketing motions, sales motions, customer success motions. And so I think if you keep those things in balance, actually, yeah, it's possible you might be able to get the best of both worlds. Yeah, because I, I was, uh, what triggered that for me was you were talking about maybe having a good, healthy conflict a little bit between sales and marketing and I know that uh, my partner, Dr. Debbie Gagish, and I have been reflecting upon all the years we've spent creating attribution models, you know, and and uh, we've actually changed our point of view on that over the last couple of years. Uh, and I know we're not the only ones, but the whole fact that marketing needs to get attribution to prove what it did or didn't bring to the pipeline business in and of itself creates an acrimonial relationship with sales. It, it just only continues to divide. And... It, to a degree, it's a bit of fool's gold, especially since there's so many channels, so many different touch points, so, you're selling to multiple buyers and committees for marketing to be able to truly accurately track it all and say definitively that it sourced something. Um, whereas what if sales and marketing just work together to get the target, to build the pipeline, to drive revenue, and sales has responsibilities to play, and marketing has responsibilities to play, and that's true team alignment. Whether or not marketing reports in the sales or not, why can't they just have a shared number and they just work on it together and they either hit it or they don't. You know, this is one of these things where um, culture matters. Uh, I, I, boy, man, the, the older I get, the, the more I realize it probably outplays everything. Like it outplays, well, certainly outplays the tech. Uh, but even to a very real degree, I think it outplays strategy. Like if you have a really strong culture, you know, that will, the strategy will evolve, uh, you know, but having a culture where folks are genuinely collaborative uh, on this makes a huge difference, you know, versus like, yeah, there are certainly cultures out there that, you know, for better or worse, they're more of an internally, you know, competitive dynamic. And I think in a world where you're trying to drive greater alignment, you know, across these teams, those cultures really struggle with this. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, and maybe, maybe back to our 90-10 rule that we talked about, you know, last time. If, yeah, it's 10% tech, 90% people, boy, uh, what's the, the, the biggest chunk of that 90% might be the culture that you really develop, you know, around how you collaborate on these things. I think that goes to say, without an, anything, right? Any kind of initiative you're trying to drive across the organization has to start from the top, um, and the, and how you build that. Otherwise, it's just another initiative to jour, right? But I mean, so many companies are, by their nature, sales driven, um, and and marketing becomes an afterthought, and, and marketing spends so much time 
fighting to justify why its job is important. And it's not just about driving demand, right, by the way, like, you know, the whole brand side of the equation, storytelling and corporate communications. I mean, and cust- you know, there's a lot in the customer experience. And I don't think people really recognize that uh, as, as, you know, as, as important as that is. Yeah, well, I mean, again, in all fairness, like just the the depth of things here and the complexity, it's like really hard. I mean, I just um, even again, like those folks who are leading marketing tech and marketing ops, like just keeping up with all the things that are happening in their world. It is. um, Yeah, it's exhausting. I mean, it's it's the two best of times, worst of times. It's like it's very exciting. Hey, look at your company. And the great track record HubSpot's had just by adding on capability, right? Now it's got CRM, it's got a great CMS platform. Sure. So a few years ago, if you bought HubSpot, you were doing inbound, you're doing some light email nurturing right now. If you say HubSpot, well, that could mean a lot more, right? Based on context and then depending upon how that application is installed. Uh, and those are also very different skill sets and points of view. You know, building a framework to support a website is different than building out email marketing campaigns, which is different than inbound SEO, paid media, which is different than relationship structure and, and pipeline territory forecasting and management. And so these are, they, they overlap, right? In some kind of Venn diagram way, but they also have their own unique stuff yeah well you know for a long time folks have been talking about like you know these t-shaped uh you know marketers and yeah it's it's as true as ever it's like you really do need folks who you, you want to appreciate the expertise in some of those different dimensions because someone who's an expert in seo still really valuable you know person someone who's an expert in like you know how do i orchestrate like uh, these nurturing campaigns and a demand gen funnel there's an expertise that goes into that but you want them to have that sort of broad team of at least understanding like okay this thing that i'm an expert in how does it connect and relate to these other things because yeah it it is you know the customer has no visibility into you know these fellows they're just trying to like take a journey that is either feels coherent or doesn't and sadly in far too many cases it still doesn't feel coherent and so yeah um, <laughs> the, the the joys and challenges of uh, uh this profession um so and you spent a lot of time tracking this, writing about it, talking to a bunch of people. What do you think the trend the trends are in the next couple of years? Where is this going next besides just more? Yeah, there's so many interesting things happening. So the things that are top of mind for me is I do think this generative AI wave is going to really transform a lot of marketing and sales motions because, you know, for 20 five years we've been talking about personalization and the truth is it's still largely just been a couple steps beyond mail merge it's like oh, okay yeah it's personalization but we're really just substituting this we're substituting that these generative ai engines you know and i suspect with the release of gpt4 which is rumored to be like 500 times you know more powerful than you know this thing that's already blowing our minds with gpt3 i think you're going to have the ability for AI to actually truly create personalized things where it pulls the data of what we have, it pulls information about who the uh, you know recipient is, it dynamically synthesizes that and it does it in such a smooth way that, yeah, it's indistinguishable from that being like custom crafted for that person. 
just the scale then of marketing, like the scale of content, the way in which we track all that content. Uh, it just, I think that's going to be a huge thing in these next couple of years. Um, I think other things is, you know, we're talking uh, last time a bit about, you know, like this universal data warehouse layer. There's a lot of evolution happening there very rapidly. Um, I think that will be game changing for marketing to be able to be connected to more and more data from across the org. But it's also going to have a whole bunch of complexity in like, how do we rationalize this data and align it and like make it coherent? Um, let's see, two other things that come to mind. Uh, not just because I'm the VP of platform ecosystem at HubSpot, but in general, I think this sort of business model of thinking about ecosystems, that it's not just us and our customers, but it's increasingly the network of other companies who are also working with our customer and how do we find more and more collaborations between them? It's, you know, it's the second party data uh, revolution. Do you think that we'll start seeing MarTech move onto blockchain? That's interesting. Um, I am sure there are use cases that will. Um, you know, in general, I think the whole quote unquote web three movement is early. Like I it's not something that I'm thinking like, oh, and in 2023, this is gonna be the new reality. I think it's got got a few more years to bake before yeah, it really shakes out. But the underlying premise of what blockchain enables, I I'm very certain there'll be use cases. I just question becomes like what's the scope and scale of those right. maybe uh, not so much the cryptocurrency part you know but but some, some <laughs> other elements um, you know this time last year this, this time last year like you know nfts were the hot thing everyone was like oh my goodness all marketing is going to be nfts <laughs> here we are a year later and go, well maybe not <laughs> yeah it's been a, a lot of interesting investment in that area um so a few minutes ago, you were talking about GPT-4, and for those people that aren't familiar with the OpenAI movement and what that means, you, could you elaborate for a minute about? Sure. So uh, OpenAI is this uh, group that had been creating a lot of these, uh, you know, um, very large, uh, originally open source, um, uh, you know, models. One of them was this thing called GPT-3, which is this large language model that all these cases where you see things like generating text, you know, for you, and it's actually readable. It sounds like maybe even a human made that. Uh, so that's GPT-3. Uh, they've got another project called Dolly, which, you know, has been the, you know, you type in a description of an image you want and miraculously, you know, having like, hoovered up, you know, millions of examples of images all over the world, you know, it now extrapolates and creates an image for you. There's, there's clearly attribution questions that are still open, open discussions uh, in that world. Um, but this GPT-3 stuff, it, it was really, it became really scary good. It like is actually readable in a lot of cases. There's another iteration of that that's due to release here probably any month at this point. It'll be GPT-4, and the early estimates are is it's actually 500 times, 500 times more powerful than GPT-3. And so I don't even know if I can quite picture that, but my sense is the things that start getting generated out of that iteration will be like, wow, this writes better than than I do. <laughs> now, again, I'm, I'll still caveat that by saying, you know, these things are still statistical engines that are creating the illusion 
you know, of writing, but they still don't actually understand what they're writing, you know, so there, there is still very much a world for us humans for at least a little bit longer, but, um, I had, a um, get my, uh, our youngest daughter, she's an artist and we were having a, uh, an ethics discussion last night about, so if you use a platform like Casper to create art, the, the AI is driven the art, could you then sell it as an original piece of art? Or what, what, and, and so it's like, well, Sure, it is the AI that built it, but the person put in the parameters, right? So you're the one who said, you know, do it in acrylic, do it in neo-realistic or impressionist or something. So, and you typed in the words that what you wanted. So technically, why, why is that any different than picking up a, a paintbrush or a canvas or, or creating it? It's just so, you know, it's kind of kind of an interesting uh, discussion. So that definitely um, gets into so then the ethics of marketing. You know, um, should there be? You know, if if um, we start using more and more AI to build content and creative and campaigns, is it the marketer that's managing it? Is it the computer? And where, where's the line? Yeah, um, I will try to not make the uh, obvious joke that non-marketers would make about, you know, marketing and ethics. <laughs> you mean like right. military intelligence? Um, uh, all right. All right. No, that's not nice. Um, these are. Yeah, I mean, they're. They're, they're not just marketing questions. It's like, um, you know, in fact, actually, you see this happening right now that, um, you know, a related profession in software, um, uh, you know, so all these people who actually program for a living, there's a model that's similar to GPT-3, but rather than writing text, it's about writing code. And what they did was they looked at all these examples of code that had been written and contributed to GitHub, and that's how they train this model. And now you're able to just tell this thing, oh, I want code that does X, Y, and Z, and it just writes it for you. But there's actually now a lawsuit that's being opened up uh, you know, by developers who had contributed their code to GitHub because it's like, this is a kind of theft. I mean, we're going to see this with you know, certainly the art. Uh, we'll see more of it with text. And I don't know where that will shake out, but I think, yeah, this is this is definitely a um, one of those watershed moments where, like, we as a civilization are going to have to face some really thorny questions. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have a, a, a great answer to that yet. We might have to cover that in part three. <laughs> actually what we should do is we should pull up was at the chat gpt3 so there's this version of gpt3 now that you can interact with you ask it questions and it comes back and again it's frighteningly it has the illusion of being frighteningly realistic we should just ask it we should say okay chat gpt3 how is this likely to be resolved and see what it comes back with i don't know that we can trust what it will say it might be biased but <laughs> it could it could very well be uh yeah i guess we'll have we're creating our own version of the terminator so <laughs> one way shape or form goodness, goodness, ride, goodness. Ride, <laughs> did we not watch our science fiction movies as kids they tried to warn us about this <laughs> Yeah, one thing about human history, we don't really tend to learn from lessons of the past. We uh, tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. So it should be uh, interesting times ahead. So uh, we'll have to pick this up again in part three. But uh, Scott Brinker, thanks again for being such a great guest on our program and for all that you've done uh, for the industry over the last 20 years. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being on the program. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Have a great day. Thank you.